0: You know, hiding is a pretty common uh, trope, both in books and movies. These stories about hiding out, where someone would go into some place for protection or to keep your identity from being known for a variety of reasons. The whole Bourne series is based on hiding, where Jason Bourne hides from Treadstone. Kindergarten cop Arnold Schwarzenegger hides in a a sleepy town as a kindergarten teacher. And the fugitive, Harrison Ford, hides out from, the, from uh, Warrant and Tommy Lee Jones while he searches for the, one-eyed man, the one-armed man. Hiding out, it is a common theme in movies. And of course, horror, horror movies feature this version all the time, right? Hiding, finding hiding places um, from uh, people who would seek to do them harm. Um, I haven't had to do that yet, by the way. I haven't had to hide to save my life, but I I know I've played this out in a lot of variety of hiding games. I used to sit in service as a young boy during uh, when the pastor would start preaching, and I would visualize all the places in the church that I could hide if I was playing hide-and-go-seek, and there was all these you know, aisles and rooms in the church that I grew up in where I could hide out. It was this elaborate building of mazes, and it it captured my imagination um, to think about that. Hiding out is also a theme in our scripture. In fact, uh, in Psalm 51, David writes, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. For in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. David, of course, writes this psalm while on the run, fleeing from King Saul. Saul wants to kill him, and so David hides, and he describes hiding as a refuge, waiting in the shadow of God's wings until disaster has passed. Sometimes God wants us to hide. He rarely wants us to first understand. He doesn't want us to fix our situation. He wants us to run. And this is the common journey for people in our scriptures. We all come from a long line of hiders, right? Abraham hides. Multiple times in the story of Abraham, he hides from Pharaoh in Egypt, from King Abimelech in Canaan. And in some sense, he's even hiding out in the in, in, in Canaan from the city of Sodom. Jacob hides. He hides from Esau, living life in Paddam Aram. And then he flees and hides again from his father in law, Laban, only to meet God face to face in a wrestling match before he faces Esau, his brother. Joseph hides from his brothers, only to be revealed in surprise after his father returns and looks upon his face. Moses hides. First in a basket on the Nile, and then as an Israelite in the house of Pharaoh, and later still in the wilderness on the run after slaying an Egyptian. Rahab hides the spies in Jericho. David hides multiple times while on the run being hunted down by Saul. Esther hides. She hides her identity as a Jew at the urging of Mordecai, so God might use her to deliver his people. Elijah hides. He hides on the run from Ahab and Jezebel, despairing in the process. And even Jesus hides. Today, in our text, we see that Jesus hides in his flight to Israel. For whatever reason, there comes a time in every Christian's life when they realize that they don't have the resources to manage their lives, and God sends them into hiding. Jesus' world could not have been under crazier conditions. We're going to basically look at this text in two parts. First, verses 1 to 12, the world is broken, but it is God who sends us into hiding. And the players in our text, in this first part of the text, first is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. While Jesus was born in Bethlehem, his troubles flowed out of Jerusalem. Here, at his birth, where Herod is the king, Jerusalem was the crown city of the Jews. By the time of Jesus, it was the capital of the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. You can see that there on the map. But it was the most important of all cities. It housed the temple which Herod had rebuilt. Here was the center of life for the Jew. The city, that name Jerusalem, literally means foundation of peace. And yet this city, through all its history, has never enjoyed an extended period of peace, even to this day. It's a beautiful city replete with history and culture. It rested within five natural hills or subdivisions. It was heavily fortified. And at the time of Jesus' birth, it was a very religious and secular city and not a particularly spiritually healthy place. It was known at the time for its opulence and its moral corruption. And so Jerusalem provides the place, the scenery of much of Jesus' life, even though Jesus spends very little time there. And in fact, in our text, he hides out from there. The other cast of characters are the wise men, the wise men who came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. God uses these outsiders, superstitious, part scientists, part astrologists to direct Herod's attention to Jesus' birth. That's interesting, right? When you think about it, if God didn't send the wise men then Herod wouldn't have known Jesus was born. So it almost seems like a detail that could have been left out of the story, but it wasn't, and that's important. For some reason, God allows this trouble into the redemption story. It's part fulfillment of prophecy and part foreshadowing of what is to come, and it's part of what God does when he sends us into hiding. The third character in our text is Herod. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod the Great was a brutal and insecure small-k king. He ruled Palestine for nearly 70 years. He was known for his great building projects. He restored the temple. He built the port at Caesarea. He built the fortress at Masada and the cave of the patriarchs. But he's also a very paranoid ruler. A puppet of Caesar and Rome. The Jews looked upon him with fear and disdain. He was known for violence, both in Jerusalem and in his own home. He killed one of his wives and three of his sons in fear that they would try to usurp him. So it's no surprise that Matthew tells us in verse 3 that when Herod hears the news of a king, he's troubled. That's an understatement. That word is used to describe the disciples when they saw Jesus walking on the water in Matthew 14 and they thought him to be a ghost. It means to be terrified of soul. When Herod hears the news, he is terrified and his fear and anxiety calls all of Jerusalem, it says, to experience the same. Who wouldn't be terrified with Herod? If he was willing to kill his family, he was capable of any atrocity. He gathers his priests, his scribes, and inquires about the would-be king. Where can we find him? Bethlehem, my king. So Herod attempts to lure the wise men into his plot. Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I might worship him. Of course they don't, because... God warns them in a dream to depart for home another way. So Herod, in his anxious rage, will order the slaughter of the innocents. Every baby boy, two years and younger, in the region, killed. Again, fulfillment of prophecy, fulfilling Jeremiah 31.15, quoted by Matthew in verse 18, and foreshadowing the threat that Jesus and his family will live under. This is Jerusalem under Roman occupation. There is turmoil, wars, both great and small. Death is a constant companion to the people here. So God sends this family into hiding. And this leads us to Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. In our text, God sent an angel to visit Joseph in a dream, to warn them, just like he did the wise men, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. We talked about hiding out stories, but both history and movies are replete with promised kings and children and the need to hide them. Imagine this, first the dream and then the flight. Everything in an instant changes for Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. They become refugees seeking protection from a wicked king in a foreign land, in this broken world, under the threats of these powers and authorities, God sends them into hiding Jesus, a baby and yet the Son of God in flight again, prophetic fulfillment of Hosea eleven in verse fifteen, and yet also foreshadowing a Jesus who lives in Nazareth, who hides his identity as Messiah, except to a ver- to a very few until the time has come sometimes i think we hear all this every year and we forget the wonder and the scandal of incarnation jesus is a baby in our text he isn't grown he can't protect himself he is dependent on mary to nurse him he is dependent on them both to clean and clothe him and a king driven by the dragon satan seeks to kill him Vulnerable, small, insignificant, the eternal God, a human baby, limited. His life dependent on a teenage girl and her husband. And so God sends them into hiding. Joseph and Mary skirt by Jerusalem, avoiding Herod, and they sojourn in Egypt. A weird juxtaposition, right? If you know your Bible, the story of Israel told in reverse, this time the fleeing of a, from a wicked ruler for Egypt. The world broke, breaks, and the holy family is sent to hide out in Egypt. And then verses 13 and 18, our second point, when God sends them into hiding, it isn't because he's finished, but rather he is only beginning. We, we think the opposite because we have mis- this mistaken notion that our God is as clueless to our unfolding stories as we are. But he isn't. He knows the end from the beginning. He stands outside of time. God doesn't send us into hiding while he figures out what to do with us. He sends us into hiding to change us, to cause us to draw deeply from his well of fatherhood. In all the cases we mentioned above, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the spies, Elijah, Esther, why the hiding? So that God might be their refuge, so that they would see God as their hiding place. Look at these psalms from David. Psalm 32, 7, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Psalm 119, 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Psalm seventeen eight, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 27, 5, for in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent. That is the Holy of Holies, by the way. He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. I can imagine Mary and Joseph praying these prayers. As they take their baby to Egypt, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. You see, God sends us into hiding so we might remain. In verse 15, the actual word in Greek is the word for existence. It's the word to be. Now, the reason I mention this is because we can all get, we can all twisted up on what it means to wait on God. Some people flippantly use words like just wait on the Lord because they aren't there and feeling the pressure, the failure, the fear, the sorrow that we do in the waiting. But the reality is most of the time, waiting on God is simply what it is for Joseph and Mary, to just exist, to go on living until he changes the scenery. And when he does, it isn't merely to make you strong, but instead to heal and deliver you. God sends the family to Egypt to deliver them. Of course, consequently, to deliver us. And this time is built for us to depend on God as our Father. Now, Jesus' hiding isn't done in Egypt, right? Herod will die shortly after, and the Holy Family will return to Nazareth, yet, Jesus will essentially hide the next 30 years in Nazareth. I mean, Jesus' interactions with Jerusalem are really at the temple, and we, we don't know how often he goes. We, we can speculate. We are told about the time when he's 12, and he runs, from his, runs away from his parents to talk about the law with the religious leaders there, but otherwise, nothing until his temptation. And even after revealing himself, right? Even after Jesus steps on the scene uh, publicly, There's this thing called the messianic secret, which is most clear in the gospel of Mark. Verse like 3-2 of Mark, he strictly told the disciples to not make him known. This repeats several more times in the gospel of Mark. We also see it in Luke and in Matthew, particularly Matthew 12, where in verse 14, the Pharisees plot to kill him after Jesus heals a man with the withered hand. And as verse 15 says, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place... Followed by the crowds, he heals. And Matthew says, warning them not to tell who he was. Not to tell who he was. That messianic secret. It's a curious thing. This, of course, was to fulfill Isaiah 42, 1-4. Here is my ser- servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit in him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. I I love this. Jesus' messianic secret keeps him in hiding so he can minister to bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Until the time it is to be fulfilled where Jesus will turn towards Jerusalem. But until then, Jesus is in hiding, healing people, releasing captives, giving sight to the blind, and charging them. Don't say anything. My time hasn't yet come. I want this to sit with you. Because you are sent into hiding for much the same reasons, both to depend on God as Father, as we all are smoldering wicks and bruised reeds, right? Like this, the light is about to put out in our lives oftentimes. Smoke is the only thing that is recognizable about us and Jesus. We are broken and bruised reeds. We need the ministry of our Father. We need the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus will turn, like Flint, we're told in Luke 9, towards Jerusalem where he will undo the powers that up to this time he is hiding out from. He does go to Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, we read, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often, Jesus said, would I have gathered your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus will eventually enter into Jerusalem on a donkey and days later he is betrayed there. Eventually he will be led out of the city gates and hung on a cross and there he will die For bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. For those of us in hiding, as he himself prophesies, he will be hidden in the earth for three days, and then he will rise. And yet, even weirdly in the story, even after resurrection, Jesus in some sense remains hidden, right? I love Jesus hiding in the interaction with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Right, that story where Jesus just shows up walking with two men who are walking on this road, and as he shows up, he begins to have a conversation with them and eventually unveils himself to them, comes out of hiding. In 1618, an artist named Diego uh, Velázquez depicted the Emmaus meal in a painting called Kitchen Maid with the Supper of Emmaus. This is the scene where Jesus eats with the disciples. Jesus and his disciples are in the left corner of the painting, but the picture focuses our attention on the maid. She has an astonished look. She is overhearing the conversation, realizing perhaps that a previously dead man has just been eating her food. The meal in the painting is hinted at, but it's tidied away in the corner, and the central piece of the painting is a rag, the image of a new world colliding with the old. After the painting was finished, the owner altered the piece. The Emmaus scene is covered over entirely. The original was only rediscovered in 1933 when the painting was cleaned. The resurrection Christ had been removed. The transcendent washed away. That's what our culture does. The transcendent has to be now found in the imminent. There's no transcendent anymore. If you want a spiritual experience, go feed the poor or do something you love. Take a walk in nature. Your answers are there. Yet Velasquez reminds us that what we are left with is rags at the sink with rags. The resurrection of Jesus is the promise of a new world, a new day. We have yet to receive our resurrected bodies. Our world is not yet renewed. We still live in a world under the curse where, like Lewis says about Narnia in the winter of the White Witch, there is no Christmas, only winter. We live between Good Friday and Easter, and now Christ is incognito, the hidden Christ. His reign is hidden, like Aragon in the Lord of the Rings. He's just a ranger, but in truth, he's the real king. And one day, it will all be made manifest, but now it's hidden. This is the message of Advent, the hidden Christ. And so all of us live as disciples. We embrace a life of obscurity, hiddenness, weakness, marginality, smallness. In Velasquez's painting, the woman appears to be an African slave and the artist lived in the time of slavery. Velasquez emphasizes this. The maid's dignity as she listens to the words of Jesus. She is unnoticed in her world, but she dominates the painting. This is the way of the kingdom of Jesus. It's the unnoticed in the world. It's the yeast in the dough. It's the seed growing unseen. It's the hidden parts of the body of Christ, those gifts that are incognito, that serving that no one knows about, that will be eventually revealed and receive honor. But right now, it's unknown. And because we are disciples of the cross, and through the cross, we reign in the world, we too will be unknown. These Emmaus disciples walk the road with questions, not victors, not people with all the answers, but fellow human beings struggling with questions. And Jesus walks with them, hears them, listens to them, opens the Bible for them. Oh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that has been spoken. These Bible readers missed it. We had hoped that he would be the one for the one who would redeem Israel. And what were they looking for? They were looking for glory, and that's why they missed it. They hadn't reckoned with the depth and darkness of their sin. They had missed what the sacrifices kept pointing to. They missed their own need of atonement for a God, a redeemer who suffers. To his suffering, they were blind too. In our world where glory still dominates the headlines and men and women search for it, we all want our 15 minutes of fame. Children dream of being famous. We live for views and likes. We are made promises by politicians that we will be great. And the Bible story seems so out of place in that. A savior who suffers. But this is the moment to be people shaped by the cross. And the cross will always be weakness and foolishness in our world. In fact, our resurrection life is revealed in our conformity to the cross. Now think about that. The glory and splendor of the resurrection is revealed as we are conformed to picking up our crosses and following Jesus in the world. In this Christ, God has hidden himself from our wisdom our notions of how God can and should behave, so that by turning from it, we might be saved. God's plan and purpose in the world will remain hidden, and the good news about the Christ who saves in and through all circumstances will remain true. You see, friends, God hides himself from the wisdom of the world. We walk with a Savior who clothes himself in weakness, so we might depend on him as Father, so we too might hide with him. My kids, whenever they get afraid, whenever they're scared, whenever they're doubting, they hover around us under the shadow of our wing. They might want a hug, a conversation, they want us as parents to be a refuge for them. That is how God lives for us. He invites us into this place to hide in him, to find him as a refuge. Think about prayer. Think about the impossible prayer request that I've asked you to start to think about. Think about the hiddenness of prayer. Like, you make requests unto God. Sometimes you might share those requests. Sometimes it might be known. But it's not known in a grand way. Usually it's known in a small way. And you put yourself out there into God's refuge and security with this news, this information. You reveal yourself. You're vulnerable before the Father. As you pray, you ask, and you wait, and you hope that God might answer and hear your prayers. Part of that even goes with lament, the idea of lamenting injustice, lamenting evil, lamenting sin, and waiting. Lament, packaged in lament, is this idea that we wait for something that's right now hidden. We wait for that thing to be swept away. We, We wait for that renewal to happen in our hearts or our children's hearts or our parents' hearts or our friends' hearts, and we lament that they are where they are, and we wait. It's a hidden part of our life. It's a discipline to enter into so that we might hide in God and experience the same things that our Savior experienced as he hid away. Preaching. Think about preaching. In preaching, God means to proclaim God revealed. God opens up to humanity. God takes our sin, gives us the promise of God's eternal and comforting presence. But there's this hiddenness of preaching, right? It's it's called weakness. Paul recognizes that preaching Christ and him crucified is considered weakness in the world. It's incomprehensible to the human mind. It's hidden from the mind's eye. The sense of the hiddenness of God shows that God works contrary, under opposites and contradictions. God's wisdom is hidden in what seems to be foolishness. Hidden forces are at work in all of these things, in suffering. As you are invited into the place to suffer with Jesus, there is a hidden element of relief, When will relief and healing come and you are called to wait in your suffering in a hidden God, in a hidden end, trusting in his providence that there's so much we can't control. Things are working out beyond our ability. To address forces not visible to the naked eye, both in ourselves and others, is indeed the essence of responsibility as it takes in account our limited autonomy to believe that we can be accountable on the strength of what we consciously can know and do by the actions of the will without high respect for what may be operating outside our awareness is sheer folly. And David knew this. David knew about folly, hidden forces acting upon him. Swaths of Scripture are devoted to retelling those stories. He knew what it cost him and those he cared about. He would remind God of his responsibilities. He would cry out to him. He knew that between the two of them, only one could cause existence itself to change. Friends, that's what it looks like to trust in the fatherhood of God. That's what it looks like to hide under the shadow of his wing. It's to trust him in his providence, to trust him that he is the only one that has the power to change anything. As we voice impossible prayer requests, that is what we are doing. We're stepping into this place and hiding with God that we might trust Him as Father. God's power is most fully revealed under the weakness of a suffering Savior on a cross. Salvation comes to us through damnation. Life comes through death. The hiddenness of God points to the paradox of grace. God hides in these events because we do not experience their true meaning through our rationality and through what we can see, but through faith. And at the, thing, at the end of this thing, at the end of the day, hiding is trusting. Trusting that God will deal with what you have no control over. It's getting out of the way when every instinct is to fight rather than flee. It is believing that God is doing something in you because, in fact, he is. So, friends, this morning, what makes you want to hide? What makes you want to run? And where do you run? Like, there's a lot of hiding that God sends us on displayed in Scripture, but there's also a lot of self-hiding that people in the Scripture do. Right? Adam and Eve... Our first parents hide, right? They sin against God, and God comes to walk with them in the cool of the day. And where are they? Hiding, thinking they can hide from God. They sow fig leaves for themselves to cover up the guilt and the shame that they feel because of their sin. Like, there's all kinds of examples of people running into self-hiding. But God invites us into something else, a hiding in him, because he is a hidden God, and Jesus is a hidden Savior. And Advent is a time to press into that experience of the hidden God and the hidden Savior, waiting for the full reveal based on the big or the small reveal, and waiting. Paul says, the longer you live with the mask, the greater the void grows between the mask and the internal reality of who you are. That void becomes vacuous, and you end up being loved for someone you aren't. You see, every time we make the exchange of self-hiding instead of hiding in God, we are living with a mask, and the void grows between who you are and who you are loved for being, and they aren't the same thing. It's all fake and fraudulent, and you aren't hidden from God. Right? Even if you self hide, the reality that David tells us in Psalm 139 is you can't hide from God. There is nowhere, David says, that we can flee from his presence. If I were to go to the far side of the world, you are there. If I go to the depths of the earth, you are there. You knit me together in the innermost parts of my mother's womb. You know me. There's nowhere we can go to be hidden from God. And yet, that is what we attempt to do. And so Paul reminds us this morning that if you are in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. There is this deep security knowing that right now, where you sit, no matter what's going on around you, the most true thing about your existence is that Christ is in you, and you are in Christ, and Christ is hidden inside of God. That is how protected and secure, how much of a refuge God is for you right now at this moment. And God is inviting you this morning, at Christmas, to celebrate a God who so closely identifies with his people that he would experience even the dangers, the inconveniences, the sorrows of this broken world in order to deliver us. For Jesus, Jerusalem never meant anything but trouble. It was the epicenter of his parents' flight. It would be the city outside whose walls he would be executed, but also where he would secure our deliverance. Whenever God sends you into hiding, it isn't for us to avoid responsibility. It is to do what Mary and Joseph did, to leave everything, everything behind except for the one who most matters. Only Jesus, the helpless babe, God with us. Your life, friends, is hidden with Christ and God. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would meet with us this morning, even now, through the preaching of the word, through this table, how you hide yourself in a sense in the common elements of bread and wine. To just look at them are just things that we eat and drink and yet your very presence, we are told, is here as we gather together as the people of God. These things are blessed. You appear to us by faith in and around this table. Hidden to the naked eye. And yet, in truth, we are invited and seated in the heavenlies. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the drama that we're depicting once again this morning, that we're living into. Our script is to come forward and to take and eat and drink together as the one people of God. So I pray that as we do that this morning, you would reveal yourself to us, that our faith would grow, that our, our joy would be made full, that you would do something in us, to remind us of your great mercy and grace displayed in Jesus. And that you would be our refuge, that we would hover together as a whole community this morning in the shadow of your wing. And the uncertainty of a new year, and the reflecting of this year, in this Advent season, that God, once again, we would come and experience you as a mother hen brooding over us, your chicks. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.